Hello, I'm Uriel Epstein, Executive Director of the Renew Democracy Initiative. And this is Winter is Here, a podcast where we discuss how we arrived at the global battle between tyranny and democracy. And more importantly, how we can win. With me is my co-host, Gary Kasparov, chairman of RDI, former world chess champion, and prominent Russian dissident. And we're joined by Bill Browder, the head of the Global Magnitsky Sanction Campaign and author of the upcoming book, Freezing Order, about tracking Putin's wealth in the West. Thank you both for joining me. Great to be here. So, Bill, I want to start with kind of a very basic question. When we think about sanctioning Russia, I've generally been thinking about it in two parts. There's the general sanctions on Russian institutions, and then there's sanctions on individual oligarchs. Is that the right way to think about it? Well, talking about sanctions is like talking about medicine. So there are some medicines that work, and there are some sanctions that work. And so when we put the word sanctions out there, we have to be sort of connoisseurs of what kind of sanctions there are. And it used to be back in the old days that when you talked about sanctions, you would be putting trade sanctions on a country, meaning you stop trading with that country. But as time has evolved, and one of the things that I've spent the last 10 years doing is coming up with a modern day cancer drug, as it would be in terms of sanctions, which is instead of sanctioning a whole country, why not pick out the really bad guys in that country and sanction them individually? And it's a particularly useful tool to target your sanctions towards bad guys in a place like Russia, because such a small number of people control everything, both politically and economically. This all came about as a result of the murder of my lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky. And there's now a piece of legislation called the Magnitsky Act, which freezes the assets and bans the visas of human rights violators and kleptocrats in Russia and around the world. And this law exists in the United States and 33 other countries. So the law that you're describing, the Magnitsky Act, it focuses on individual Russian oligarchs rather than Russian state institutions, banks, and so forth. Do you see a distinction between those two approaches? Are they complementary? Do you find one of them to be more effective than the other? Well, so in the lead up to this war, I was advocating just going after the oligarchs. And the idea that I had was that Putin has had such a easy time over the last 22 years after many, many atrocities that he's committed that if we just showed him that we care enough about these atrocities or about this upcoming atrocity that we are ready to punish him in some way, and the best way to punish him is to go after the oligarchs, I think we might have avoided this horrific war. But like every other time in the past, we didn't do anything leading up to it. And so now we're in a situation where it's much bigger than just the oligarchs. We have to do whatever we can in whatever way we can to completely and economically blockade Russia from any money coming into the country. And so when we talk about sanctions now, it's not just about targeting the oligarchs. It's about every form of hard currency payment that could come into the country should be stopped. And so what that means is we should go after the central bank reserves. We should go after cutting off banks themselves from the SWIFT system. We should sanction the oligarchs who look after Putin's money. And we should stop buying oil from Russia. Those are the four main 
tools that we have. Some of them have been done properly. Some of them still need to be done. And if we were to do all of those and we did all of them completely improperly, Putin would no longer have enough money to execute this war. Yeah, I think it's worth, you know, just going back to what Bill said about medicine, this metaphor. I think it's an excellent one because it tells us that many things could be prevented. It's like a famous say about one ounce of prevention. And now we're at the time where we just, we need uh, surgery because we missed so many opportunities to send the right message to Putin and to his cronies and to show that we cared. And it could have saved us from the disastrous state of affairs today. Even smaller package of sanctions in 2014 after annexation of Crimea could be enough to prevent Putin from building up his aggression against Ukraine. Correct, Bill? Absolutely correct. And if we just look back in history, the whole world is now saying Putin is a war criminal. He's a killer. But I've been saying that, and Gary has been saying that, and a few other people have been saying that for a long time. He was a war criminal after Georgia. He was a war criminal after taking Crimea and going into eastern Ukraine, shooting down 298 innocent civilians on MH17. He's a war criminal carpet bombing Syrians, civilians and hospitals and Aleppo and other places. He's a war criminal when he was using chemical weapons in Salisbury and polonium in central London against his enemies. This man is a serial killer, a man who has no morals whatsoever, and we've done nothing, literally nothing to stop him. And so now we're in this place. And if we say, who's to blame for this war in Ukraine? Well, you know, everyone's blaming Vladimir Putin, but we should be blaming ourselves as well because we gave him a free pass. And so when he was doing his calculations leading up to this, he was saying, you know what? No one's ever done anything to me before. All these Westerners are so greedy and small-minded that they're not going to do anything now. I'm going to go in and just carpet bomb Ukraine and the same thing will happen. And if we had just shown him just a little taste of unity among Westerners willing to take a little bit of an economic hit to show him what was what, we might not have been here. He might have made a different calculation. I really like this idea of sanctions as medicine. And so if we continue down this path of thinking of them as kind of a cancer drug, right? So the first step with respect to cancer is prevention. Now, as Gary pointed out, an ounce of prevention worth a pound of cure. Obviously, we missed that. We were unable to prevent anything. The next step is surgery which is much more targeted. It's narrow. It's much more specific. It's less harm on the whole body. We appear to have missed that as well. And so we're now at the stage of chemo, where unfortunately with chemo, you're not just targeting the cancer cells, sadly, right? You're targeting healthy cells alongside the cancer cells. And so Gary, maybe first to you and then Bill, by the very nature of broad state-based sanctions, they're going to harm a lot of people alongside the people that you want to harm. What kind of effect do you see these sanctions having on the Russian people? Bill, before you answer this, you know, I could tell Uriel that is, Bill and myself and late Boris Nemtsov and Valoda Karamurza and all of us who worked on sanctions, we have been warning about it. We have been saying that we'd better have sanctions against few because if things could go that far, then you have to enlarge the scope of the sanctions and they will potentially hurt many others. So again, it's about prevention. And right now we reached a point, you know, where, you know, it's unfortunately our warnings. And by the way, we were called warmongers, those who try to escalate things. We have been saying exactly the opposite. So the only chance to avoid escalation that would be inevitable is to do something at early stage. You know, it's unfortunate that we have to economically blockade Russia. But it's a hell of a lot more unfortunate 
that tens of thousands of innocent people are being bombed into death and oblivion in Ukraine at Putin's order. I don't think we have a choice now. Putin has refused to not do this. And we're now in a position where we have to use every tool available, not just economic tools, military tools. And I hope we have a minute to talk about no-fly zones, but let's get through sanctions first. But it's tough luck for the average Russian who's now can no longer watch Netflix and use their MasterCard and withdraw money from their bank. But it's a hell of a lot better than sitting in Mariupol in a basement and having the basement collapse on you with your children because Russian bombs are bombarding you. So I do want to continue talking about sanctions just a little bit because I think there are pretty massive misunderstandings about what sanctions are, how they work among sort of the general public. And so, Bill, I wonder if you could outline for us what is the status quo with sanctions now? How effective are they? Are they biting as much as they should be? How are they working as of today? Well, the first thing that's really important is that we should not mislead ourselves into saying that sanctions are going to change the mind of Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin doesn't change his mind. Vladimir Putin is a man who only knows escalation. He's living in a prison yard mentality where he cannot show any weakness. He cannot admit a mistake. All he can do is move forward. So we're not going to change his mind. So if anyone thinks, wow, we're not changing Putin's mind, sanctions are not working, we should just put that to the side because that's not what's going to happen. I think we should also put to the side this idea that if we sanction oligarchs, they're going to rise up and overthrow Putin. The Russian oligarchs are all there at Putin's pleasure. He could make them not oligarchs in 30 seconds with a swipe of a pen, and he can make them not alive in five minutes with an order to the FSB. And they understand that, and they're all absolutely terrified of him. None of them have the balls to stand up and create a coup or in any way go in that direction. And I think we also can assume that the Russian people are not going to rise up. And Gary may have a different opinion about this, but Vladimir Putin is running such a successful repression operation that any person who raises their head above the parapet gets arrested for just about anything now. He's eliminated all information about even what's going on. There's no independent sources of information. They're bombarding everyone with the wrong information. Everybody's reacting to this propaganda in a sort of emotional way and not buying into what's actually happening. So in my mind, the reason for sanctions is very simple, that Vladimir Putin has got to pay for this war. And this war costs a lot of money. It costs like a billion dollars a day. And if he doesn't have that money to spend it, he won't be able to execute this war. And I should point out that this war is not just against Ukraine. Everybody who says this is a Russia versus Ukraine is putting their head in the sand. This is a war versus the West. And Putin has no interest in stopping with Ukraine. He's going to be at the Estonian border pointing all of his guns at Estonia and his nukes at Berlin, London, and Washington and asking us, do you really believe in Article 5 of NATO? Do you want to go to war with me over this stuff in the hopes that we all buckle? And he thinks we probably will. Look, we pulled out of Afghanistan and let it fall to the Taliban for the sake of 3,000 troops who weren't even in combat. He thinks that maybe when faced with a nuclear confrontation with Russia, we'll pull out of this confrontation and let him have all of Eastern Europe. And so the purpose of all this is to bleed him dry so he doesn't have the money to do this because we don't want to be at the Estonian border with that confrontation and that question. So I think that makes sense. So you've essentially set up the objective of sanctions as rather than changing the political calculus necessarily of Putin or, or any of his lieutenants, 
it's more about weakening them, weakening Putin, weakening the Russian state, and therefore making it less capable of carrying out their threats. I think that makes a lot of sense. And so the question now is how successful are the existing sanctions at doing that? So in, you know, Ben De La Roca and Ben Steele from the Council on Foreign Relations recently made an argument in foreign affairs that Russia could be using financial intermediaries like China to hide tens of billions of dollars. Do you think something like that is plausible? And in general, do you find that the current sanctions that are in place, whether in Europe or in the U.S. or elsewhere, are sufficiently strong? I would argue that the current sanctions program that's being executed against Russia by the U.S., by the EU, by U.K., Canada, et cetera, is the most dramatic sanctions that have ever been executed against a country in the history of sanctions. But I would also argue that if we look at it very objectively, there's huge loopholes. So we have sanctioned the central bank reserves of Russia. They had 640 billion of reserves. That was basically his war chest, literally his war chest. Of that 640 billion, 350 billion of that is hard currency. That's dollars, yen, euros, plus francs, et cetera. That's been frozen. He's got a lot of gold and that could be made into money. And he's got Chinese currency as you mentioned. So that's one of the places where he still has resources. There are a hundred oligarchs out there. And I should point out when we talk about oligarchs, these are people who hold his money for him. When you look at an oligarch's net worth, divide it by two. Half of it belongs to the oligarch, half of it belongs to Vladimir Putin. We've sanctioned about a dozen of big oligarchs and really big and good oligarchs. But there's an article that just came out in Bloomberg today that says of the top 20 oligarchs, 10 of them are unsanctioned. And in my mind, there's 118 people on the Forbes list, probably 110 of them are cronies of Putin and holding Putin's money. And therefore, to close this loophole, to not give Putin any access to any cash, we have to sanction 110 oligarchs. But the real elephant in the room is that every day while we are sending weapons to the Ukrainians, sanctioning oligarchs, freezing central bank reserves, at the same exact time, We are sending, and I say we, I mean the Western world, are sending between half a billion and a billion dollars a day to Russia in exchange for oil and gas. That's just crazy. We're giving them money to buy bombs to kill Ukrainians to the tune of half a billion to a billion dollars a day. If we want to stop this, then the countries that are most engaged in buying Russian oil and gas have to stop buying Russian oil and gas, plain and simple. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be cheap. But countries like Germany and Italy and Austria are going to have to find alternatives and quick because that is the big loophole and that is the big problem. And that's what Putin understands to be his great strength. I couldn't agree more. So it definitely takes time. And that's also the result of the years, if not decades, of the policy of relying only on Russia. So Angela Merkel administration, government, did everything to eliminate other alternatives for gas supply to Europe, relying exclusively on uh, Russia, and kept telling us that it was all about business, no politics. I wonder what she's thinking in her retirement from the chancellery where she watches this whole thing. By the way, there are two politicians that said almost nothing. One is Angela Merkel, another one is Barack Obama. So who was responsible for the years of Putin's rise to a new level of aggression? So Obama's flexibility and reset policy contributed to Putin's belief that he was immune to Western sanctions and opposition. It is kind of nuts that we had the reset policy shortly after Putin invaded 
Georgia, another sovereign nation. I mean, the best irony or hypocrisy is after Putin poisoned people in Salisbury using a banned chemical weapon where they had to literally close the town down for 10 days, six months later, Britain was going to the World Cup in Moscow. I mean, thousands and thousands of British people going to the World Cup in Moscow. How could we have? I mean, it's, that's absurd. Well, I've definitely joked with a number of folks. I, I wish it was only a joke about how you and Gary really should be walking around with security details at this point. Yeah, I understand about these loopholes. And you're right. It's a half a billion to a billion dollars a day. This is the money that supplies Putin's war machine. But it's not only war machine. He needs money to support his propaganda machine. Also, his security forces, riot police. So if he runs out of funds, there's no one is going to defend him for ideas. Uh, Russia's regime is mafia-like. It's not ideological dictatorship. But I think what's we're missing now, and that's what I think we just can wrap up the, I'll talk about sanctions. It's what about the uh, duration of sanctions? Let's say these sanctions are strong enough, as you said correctly, the strongest that ever you know, imposed in the history of sanctions. But I do not hear so whether the sanctions will stay if, say, Putin signs some kind of the peace treaty with Ukraine. So what if Putin stops shooting? What if Putin goes back to demarcation line of February 24th? So I believe that, you know, unless we hear unequivocal statement from Americans and Europeans that no sanctions will be lifted or even eased until Ukrainian territorial integrity has been fully restored, I think without this clear message, I think Putin and his cronies may expect that they'll find loopholes and somehow can survive the worst. Well, I would go further than you, Gary. I would say that no sanction should be lifted until the territorial integrity of Ukraine is restored back to pre-Crimea days and that war reparations are paid to rebuild Ukraine because it's just unforgivable. The dead civilians, it's just unforgivable. How do we lift sanctions against somebody who is guilty of war crimes? I mean, the president of the United States, the leader of the free world, has articulately accused Putin of war crimes. How can we even lift sanctions if he's in power? From my perspective, I can understand that you want to give them incentives to stop the war in Ukraine. But at the same time, how do you lift sanctions against a war criminal? I don't know how that can be morally done. I don't even know, based on public opinion right now, that how any government can look their people in the eye after what we've watched on television, after the statements that have been made. Bill, I agree with you, of course. The only strategy for this war is to win the war and to make sure that Ukraine prevails and all territories, Crimea included, are back to Ukraine. But the way dictatorships work is that the collapse of a mythology it leads to an end of dictatorship and the man on top of it. I think that the loss of Crimea means the end of Putin. So that's why for me, it, it's equal. Saying that Ukraine's integrity is restored and reparations being paid, that's the same as saying Putin is Putin must go because he will never survive the loss of Sevastopol. So the day the Ukrainian flag is raised in Sevastopol, that's the end of Putin's regime, if not earlier. Good. Well, <laughs> I agree. Bill, earlier on, you mentioned that the list of oligarchs needs to be significantly increased, that right now, for whatever reason, there appear to be a whole lot of names missing from that list. But let's even look at the names that are already on that list, right? The people who are already sanctioned. So you have people like Alisher Usmanov in the UK, whose assets might actually be out of reach. So even though he's under sanctions, because he transferred his assets to an irrevocable trust, there now appears to be an open question as to whether or not Britain will actually be able to get at them. Meanwhile, you have Mikhail Friedman sort of, I guess, making the opposite point and saying, well, you know, he's essentially broke and, you know, sanctioning billionaires like him doesn't actually do anything. So there's obviously these kinds of two points of view where on the one hand, you have the reality 
of kind of a number of these people having been able to hide their assets, whether through their families, trusts, et cetera. And then you have, on the other hand, people basically trying to make the argument, well, you know, we now don't have any money as is, so basically leave us alone. One, how do you respond to Friedman's claim? And two, are you concerned that a lot of these oligarchs' assets are untouchable? And if so, do we need new legislation in order to get at their assets? Or do we merely need more effective ways of executing existing legislation in order to do so? Bill, before you answer the question, remind our audience what kind of money we're talking about. Because when you say assets, you know, it's not innocuous, but it's maybe not significant. Just remind them we're talking about an insane amount of money. So the estimates are that over the last 22 years, between $800 billion and $1.2 trillion of private capital has left Russia. And that's effectively the proceeds of crime. I mean, there might be a few honest dollars here and there, but let's say a trillion dollars has left Russia. And so it's an enormous, enormous amount of money, which is why it's so important because Putin is looking at the central bank reserves of 650 billion, and he's looking at a trillion dollars of offshore wealth, and all that money is effectively available to him if he can get it, which is why it has to be frozen. And you're right about the irrevocable trusts and all this kind of stuff that we read about from Alisher Zmanov. But here's the thing. <laughs> Every oligarch, long before this risk of sanctions, were all scared of other oligarchs stealing their money. And so there is no group of people more prepared than the oligarchs for this type of scenario. They have set up asset protection schemes with trusts and offshore companies and bearer shares and proxies and nominees and offshore jurisdictions, you know, layered in other offshore jurisdictions, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's highly sophisticated. But the one thing these people didn't anticipate is that everybody would be working together on this thing. So it's not just Britain sanctions them, the Americans sanction them, the EU sanctions them. And there's a really good article that just came out in the New York Times, which is talking about Roman Abramovich and his hedge fund investments. And so Roman Abramovich made his hedge fund investments through a, quote, investment advisor outside of New York City. So one would think, well, that's unfortunate because he's not under sanctions by the United States. But it turns out that the, his investment advisor made investments on his behalf or orchestrated his investments in hedge funds you know, located in New York City, but in their Cayman Island feeder funds. And one of the big unknown benefits of the UK sanctions is that all of these offshore jurisdictions, like the British Virgin Islands, the Cayman Islands, the Isle of Man, Gibraltar, Jersey, where all sorts of people keep huge amounts of money, including apparently, allegedly, Roman Abramovich, all that is subject to whatever the British government decides to do that applies to that. So the article in the New York Times talked about all these hedge fund managers that continue to manage money for Roman Abramovich. It's just frozen, but they can't even collect their fees. So should there be changes in the legislation? Of course there should be. I mean, this is a game of cat and mouse. It's a game of whack-a-mole where we are trying to figure out where they're keeping it. These guys have had like the best lawyers who are scrutinizing another set of the best lawyers to come up with the best scams and schemes and tricks to hide their money. But if everyone's working together and we have good lawyers on our side, it's going to become really tough for these guys to get their money. And it's going to become even tougher for Vladimir Putin to get hold of it. And we don't have to be perfect about this. It just has to be directionally correct. And, you know, based on what I've seen so far, uh, I think the Michael Friedman comment is probably more accurate, which is that I think he's entitled to like $3,000 a month. 
mean, he can live in his 65 million pound house. He just can only spend $3,000 a month on his food. But, you know, maybe he should, you know, cut down anyways. I mean, it's uh, there's a lot of people listening to this that survive very nicely on $3,000 a month on food. But but he could probably sell his watches, yes? <laughs> I'm sure that all oligarchs had watches. You know, so that will be now for probably one year ratio. So basically what you've pointed out is that the existing sanctions are already very powerful and give sort of free countries pretty significant latitude and pretty significant ability to go after these guys' money. Is there anything that you think that needs to be changed about the existing laws? Or at this point, are you fairly confident that basically with sufficient political will and sufficient investment on the part of prosecutors, investigators, forensic accountants, and so forth, we can basically do enough? So there are several things. First of all, as you mentioned in the Usmanov story, he transfers his house in London, according to him, to an irrevocable trust. I think that's, you know, where his sister is the beneficiary. And so one has to be very aggressive about family members. And we've started to see that. I mean, we've started to see that in, in the sanctions that have been rolled out, where the Rothenberg parents and the Rothenberg son gets sanctioned, and Kirienko, who is one of Putin's big aides, his son has been sanctioned and so on and so forth. So we're starting to see that, but th that needs to be rolled out more. But there's one group of people who absolutely have to be punished as well to make this whole thing stop. And those are what I call the Western enablers. So as one of Gary and my friends and allies, Vladimir Karamurza has said often, after oil, Russia's next biggest export is corruption. But in order to export corruption, somebody has to import it. And the importers of corruption are these Western enablers. There's all sorts of lawyers, bankers, everybody who are involved in this whole thing. And we need to come up with a way of punishing these enablers because if there's no enablers there to help them, then they can't actually do all this money laundering and obfuscation and so on and so forth. And I don't think the governments, the policymakers, and the politicians have focused enough yet on the Western enablers. How do we punish the enablers? Well, one of my ideas, before we even get into punishment, is to add a provision to the sanctions law to say that anybody who is involved in helping a sanctioned individual set up ownership structures now has a duty under penalty of law of becoming a whistleblower to the government and explaining where all the money is held and how it is structured and prosecute one to the full extent of the law, send one of these lawyers to jail for 10 years. And so have the rest of them then become the most sort of forthcoming whistleblowers you could ever imagine. I think that that would be a very nice way to get the ball rolling. And then the other thing I would say is that these are Western enablers. So, you know, you can't ban the entry of a British lawyer who would set up these structures from Britain because they're British. But there's no reason why the Americans and the Europeans can't ban their visas. I can imagine that if all of a sudden some British lawyers who are doing all this enabling couldn't travel to America or Europe anymore, no one else would be doing any enabling at all about the more decisive steps, like these really drastic measures. So do you think that we can push Western governments to use the reparations to Ukraine as a tool to confiscate these funds? Because you need some kind of legal basis to confiscate money. To freeze is one story, but to confiscate. So if you've proved the connection between this money and aggressive war that Putin started in Ukraine and the reparations that must be paid to Ukraine is by whoever makes this decision, so can we start, you know, confiscating these funds? For instance, the frozen money from uh, Russia's hot currency funds. So this is Putin's war chest or uh, some oligarchs that are closest to Putin. So uh, do you see any ways to use at least quasi-legal procedures 
to get our hands on this money and to send them to Ukraine, because otherwise, you know, it will be Western taxpayers that will have to pay for rebuilding Ukraine. You make an incredibly good point, which is that all the stuff we see right now is just freezing, not seizing in all these different respects. And so that is a huge and important point, which is how do we rebuild Ukraine? And I think it's a much easier legal argument to make that if the Russian government has committed these war atrocities, then the funds of the Russian government, the central bank reserves, should not be returned to Russia. They should be used for the rebuilding of Ukraine, and that's $350 billion. It becomes a little more tricky when you get into oligarchs because, you know, which money is dirty money, which money is less dirty money. It gets complicated. And what you don't want to do is become like the Soviets. The moment we start arbitrarily seizing money is the moment that we've kind of gone down that path. But I think that if there are existing laws that are around in most countries, which say that if money is the proceeds of crime, um, then you can seize it. That's how it works in America, at least. And I think that one could easily prove in many cases from many oligarchs that their money is the proceeds of crime. And we have huge leaks in the Panama Papers and the Paradise Papers and various other places that that's the case. And so I can imagine that one could make very legal arguments against certain oligarchs and seize large amounts of money under existing money laundering and other forfeiture statutes. But I think to just say someone's an oligarch, we've frozen their money, now we've seized it without any kind of legal basis is a very treacherous road and we should be careful before we go down that. Bill, you said a few minutes ago that basically it's a 50-50 split. Any money that oligarchs keep on their bank accounts is half of this, at least half belongs to Putin. So uh, can we consider in the future, so well, this funds are still frozen, to make deals with some of them? I mean, some of them might be considered criminals, but most of them, as I said, you know, just it's, it's a great territory and we don't want to look like Bolsheviks. So asking them politely to pay to Ukraine the Putin's half of their <laughs> fortune. That's a very elegant thought. I think it wouldn't work out so well in reality. I, I can imagine that they would resist and resist like crazy. But yes, I, I like the idea. Yeah, but look, if money is frozen so they cannot touch them, we cannot seize them, but we can freeze them. At least, you know, maybe some of them will accept it. And look, if you buy an indulgence by giving Putin's half of your fortune, maybe some of them, I actually think many of them might be tempted. On the point of Putin owning half of their fortunes, what mechanism are they using to make that a reality, right? I mean, is Putin basically just telling them you better pay for X, Y, or Z under penalty of me potentially sicking the FSB on you? Or are there more formal mechanisms in play? And in other words, how is 50% of each oligarch's fortune owned by Putin? Well, how does he make that work? Well, that's a good question. And so the first and most important thing is there's not a single piece of paper anywhere that says Vladimir Putin owns any assets. Why? Because if there was a piece of paper, then whoever had that piece of paper could blackmail Vladimir Putin. And Vladimir Putin is a former KGB agent, and he understands blackmail. It's in his blood. It's like his mother's milk. And so he's used blackmail so many times in so many different situations to get other people to do what he wants them to do. The last thing he wants to do is have anyone have that over him. So there's not going to be a document that we can find, that we can produce in court that says this, because all of these deals are done on a handshake. And the handshake is not just a handshake. It's not like they're trustworthy guys and good guys that are just going to honor their handshake with him. It's a handshake that's also enforceable by death if they don't. 
And so if an oligarch doesn't honor the 50-50 deal, then they'll just be dead. And they understand that. They don't want to die. These guys are, you know, very much wanting to stay alive. But it, it also creates a very interesting problem. And part of the reason why Putin is in Ukraine in the first place is that Putin's wealth only exists if he's the president of Russia. Because if he's not the president of Russia and he calls up one of his oligarchs, they're going to say, I'm sorry, Vladimir who? And put the phone down when he wants that billion dollars transferred. And he understands that. And so the only way that this wealth exists for him is if he's in power. And the only way he can stay in power after 22 years of mistreating Russians is at this point to start a war. Now, this war is not about Ukraine or NATO. I mean, there are arguments he can make to make it sort of publicly palatable. This war is about Vladimir Putin after 22 years and watching Nazarbayev get run over in Kazakhstan and watching Lukashenko nearly get run over in, in Belarus and watching, you know, um, Gaddafi, you know, and Saddam Hussein and all this dictators go down. He understood that, you know, his time was coming up and he needed to do something radical to prevent that. And so his whole thing is staying in power. He's got to stay in power. The, the longer he stays in power, the harder it is to stay in power. The longer he stays in power, having stolen so much money, the harder it is to stay in power. And so he needed to do something radical. And what does a dictator do in a situation like this? He goes to the old dictator's playbook and starts a war, creates a foreign enemy, revs everyone up. And that's what he did. That's what this is all about. So obviously, the lack of a paper trail and the fact that this is essentially a handshake agreement backed up by the threat of force makes it very difficult to track any, you know, these kinds of exchanges and so forth. But, you know, you've been very consistent and specific about how 50% of these guys' fortunes, so we're talking hundreds of billions of dollars, essentially belongs to Putin. Can you offer any examples, one, of where Putin called in the chit and was like, hey, you know, it's time, pay up, or how you arrive at that conclusion? So the most colorful example is his $1.3 billion palace on the Black Sea. I think that many people listening to this will know about Alexei Navalny's investigation into this palace. And what we learned about this palace, coming from people who were involved in building it, was that it was funded by a bunch of oligarchs. One of them said $250 million, another one sent in $300 million, and so on and so forth. We know their names. And so that's well documented. In the Panama Papers, you've got his best friend, from his youth, a cellist named Sergei Roldugin. Sergei Roldugin also introduced him to his first wife as a godfather of one of his daughters and is well known to be one of his proxies or nominees. And you have payments of hundreds of millions of dollars from oligarchs to Sergei Roldugin, a cellist. And so you have these little leaks, not huge leaks. I mean, you know, a billion dollars here, $2 billion there. I mean, we're talking about $200 billion or, or more, north of $200 billion net worth. And so it's hard to be able to put together the whole picture, but you can put together enough from these leaks, these anecdotes, which basically support this whole argument. And it's not a secret. I mean, everyone in Moscow knows that this is what it's all about being an oligarch. It's not like it, this is like something I just made up out of thin air. This is something that everybody who is involved in business understood to be the deal. And so it's all pretty well established at this point um, that this is how Putin holds his wealth. So I want to take a little bit of a step back right now 
We have a few minutes left here. And Bill, I know in your past life and today as well, you've worked and continue to work in the financial space. You know, at one point you were the biggest, I believe, foreign direct investor in Russia. And one of the things that Gary and I, you know, have been talking a lot about is the ways in which dictators all use similar tactics, all help one another, all support one another. And they have been flooding Western financial markets with corrupt money for decades, right? So it's not just Russia. I actually recently discovered, I mean, this was crazy to me. I recently discovered that Tokayev's brother, Tokayev being the current uh, dictator in Kazakhstan, that his brother owns a $20, $25 million mansion, something like 25 minutes away from where I grew up. So that was a very strange, <laughs> strange discovery for me. But is this a wake-up call that we need to make systemic updates to our international financial system in some way? There's no question that this is. Everybody has been so complacent, worse than complacent, so cynical about all this dirty money coming from dictators around the world. I mean, Russia is a sort of very brazen example, but as you mentioned, Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, China, Saudi Arabia, all these dictatorships doing all this dirty stuff in their country, killing people, suppressing people, ruining lives left, right, and center, starting wars, and then very happily taking their money to London and New York and so on, and having all sorts of people just looking the other way. And I think that because of what's happened with Russia and Ukraine, in terms of the Western response, I think it's totally upended all sorts of assumptions that every bad guy is making everywhere. And, and it should upend the assumptions we make, not just about the Russians, but about the Chinese and, and the Azeris and so on and so forth. I hope that's the case. It feels like that's the case, but I'm in the middle of the storm, in the eye of the storm right now. And so it's hard for me to see what it's going to feel like when the emotions have died down, when this thing has been going on for a long time, whether the greed overcomes the righteous indignation that everyone feels right now. What changes could be made to the international financial system to try to make it a little bit more resilient and, you know, a little bit more resistant against corrupt money, whether it's coming from, you know, MBS in Saudi Arabia, Russia, Kazakhstan, wherever? Well, the most important change is not even a change through laws. It's just law enforcement. If the Department of Justice in the U.S. and the National Crime Agency and Britain and the equivalents in Germany and France and, and Italy all started to prosecute, not everybody, just a few cases here and there, so that everybody starts to think that, you know, maybe there's only a one in 50 chance that I get prosecuted, but if I do, I'm going to end up going to jail for 20 years. You'd see a totally different view of how we deal with all these bad guys. And the rules exist. The sanctions exist. And so it's really more a question of actually enforcing the laws that are in place than creating a whole new set of laws to deal with this. Bill, you just talked about law enforcement, and I can remind our audience that your previous book, another best-selling book, was about Interpol, a red notice, and about the way dictators around the world have been using, abusing international police infrastructure to hunt for their enemies. And now we are facing this challenge that Interpol is still very much, you know, the weapon that's a double-edged weapon. So what can we do, you know, to make sure that the international bodies like Interpol and others, they will you know, serve uh, the purpose of law enforcement and not attack political enemies of dictators. Yeah, well, thank you for bringing that up. So Russia has issued eight Interpol arrest warrants for me. Interpol has a rule that says they will not tolerate 
politically motivated red notices, arrest warrants. And so Russia issues an arrest warrant for me. My lawyers write to Interpol. They say, yeah, this is politically motivated. They cancel it. Then Russia issues another one. <laughs> I write to Interpol. They cancel the next one. This happened eight times. And Interpol also has a rule that says that if a country repeatedly abuses the system, they should be suspended. Now, has Interpol suspended Russia? No. And this is a, a huge problem. Just now, in the last two weeks, there's now an initiative by the UK government, led by the UK and, and supported by the US, Canada, and various others, to expel Russia from Interpol. And I think that that would be a good thing. But that doesn't help the Saudis and the Saudi dissidents and the Chinese dissidents and, and all other people. Where basically, Interpol is like the United Nations. At the United Nations, you have Saudi Arabia, Angola, Venezuela on the UN Human Rights Council. At Interpol, you've got you know, some of the most heinous murdering dictators using the international police organization to chase whistleblowers and dissidents and, and political opposition members. And so, I mean, the world is really upside down in, in, in the most horrific and profound way when you have that. And, uh, you know, if Russia gets kicked out, maybe that will send a message to some of these other countries that um, you do bad stuff, you'll get kicked out of Interpol. Well, hopefully what's happening today will be a wake-up call, not just then for the financial system, but it also sounds like for the law enforcement system, political systems, and beyond. I mean, clearly there's just an unbelievable international crisis today. And that's ultimately the goal of this podcast, is to wake up the free world to the fact that a global war already exists between tyranny and freedom and to try to think through steps of how to win it. And Bill, I think you've been incredibly insightful in giving us some of those steps. So I want to thank you for joining me and Gary today. Thank you. Let me just um, finish up with one, one last thought, which sort of goes to what your whole mission is, that back in the days of communism, um, they had an organization called the Communist International. And now you don't have the Communist International, you have the Authoritarian International. And so we have to, you know, the liberal international needs to fight the authoritarian international. Yeah, I think Senator McCain proposed a League of Democracies many years ago. I think we're long, long, long overdue for creating that league. Uh, we all hope that the war, this war, as many wars before, uh, will force us to reconsider the entire structure of international relations. Indeed. Thank you very much. And so with that, I'd like to thank both of you and, and thank you all for listening to this episode of Winter is Here brought to you by the Renew Democracy Initiative alongside Substack. At RDI, we are committed to pulling American democracy back from the brink and restoring its place as a global beacon for freedom. If you'd like to support the show or the organization, please subscribe for free in your podcast player and share the episode with a friend. Or you can become an RDI subscriber at rdi.org. Thank you all.